the alcohol consumption first lifts the insecurities to ignite that authentic version of yourself. But after a while, it starts to also let loose all of that negativity. And you'll get into this, I became this angry, mean drunk. episode of Dear Men. So exciting. I have a fellow podcaster with me today. Welcome to the podcast, Omar. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm very happy to have you. Um, So Omar is a life coach specializing in addiction and recovery. And um, he is also the host of the Share podcast, which I'm sure he will tell us more about. Um, Yes. And I'm very happy to have you on today because I've been wanting to do an episode on men and alcohol for a while now. And I think that um, this is something that's definitely come up in my own dating life and those of people that I know, both men and women. And I think that addiction is sometimes misunderstood. And so I'd like to kind of break it down um, and just sort of talk about like alcohol and how it affects relationships and that includes our relationships with ourselves. So, yeah. So Omar, how did you get into the field that you're in? Like what's your own personal journey been around specifically like alcohol and relationships? Well, alcohol really was um, a soothing agent, a soothing mechanism that I discovered when I was uh, 16 and a half years old. Uh, I went to my first house party and uh, I was offered a beer, and it just changed my world. It was so I, I felt comfortable in my own skin. I felt uh, funny and attractive, and all of the things that really had affected me in my childhood disappeared as soon as I started drinking alcohol. As a kid, uh, I was picked on. I was bullied. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't know how to interact and socialize. Um, I was actually more afraid of either getting picked on or being made fun of um, or not being good enough or not being accepted. So this is basically what ran around in my head as long as I can remember until the age of 16 um, and then drinking. And then as soon as I, I, I drank that first beer, I just continued to keep drinking at that party until I got wasted. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, my God, all this beer is so nice. You know, maybe I'll have one more. I don't really remember a stopping point. I don't really remember um, how many beers I had. I just remember at some point somebody going, hey, oh, oh, I think it's time for you to go. Didn't you have a curfew? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm 16 and a half years old, right? My parents are waiting for me. And so I end up getting home and, and, and I'm wasted and my parents are all pissed off at me. Um, but I knew from that moment that alcohol was going to be a part of my life, right? I was so grateful that I had found this magical uh, liquid courage that allowed me to, to be popular and, and to make new friends, 
So that's that's the beginning. Yeah, I I, I think that's this is a great um, point to pause because I really liked how you introduced it as a soothing agent, a way of soothing yourself. And this is something that I've seen. And I think, like I said, I think sometimes addiction is misunderstood, but it seems to me like a lot of, a lot of alcohol consumption is about soothing. And in my experience with, um, dating men who've used alcohol to soothe for some of them, it's like, soothing anxiety, exactly like you said, of just the constant sort of looping thoughts or fear or anxiety coursing through their system that alcohol, it kind of numbs it. It numbs it, it dulls it. And there's a reason that it's called self-medicating because I think there's a way that some men do use it exactly as that kind of agent to help manage that anxiety. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so what it helped me do was it, it lubricated me. So it, it helped me, you know, communicate with other people. And I remember that that was in during the summertime, that was my, between my sophomore year and my junior year. So walking into my junior year, um, I immediately, first day I ran into one of the people that I had met at the party. And they were like, hey, Omar, what's up, man? I'm like, oh, dude, what's up, Chris? What's going on, man? Hey, come on over, man. Uh, you know, how was the rest of your summer? Oh, it was awesome. You know, whatever. Bullshit, bullshit. And then, and then he was like, hey, why don't you come hang out with us at lunchtime? And so here's what happened instantly. I went from this social outcast, from this awkward kid, from somebody who didn't have a lot of friends to immediately immediately getting plugged into the social pipeline. Um, and I had arrived. And so it just kind of added to the fact that, oh my God, I need alcohol. I really need alcohol. There's no way that I can, you know, even be around these people or, or, or feel comfortable um, because I didn't feel comfortable, right? I, showing up at school, I'm sober. So even at lunchtime, I'm like, fake it till you make it, you know, hang out, try and be cool. Try not to say anything stupid. Um, and so well, what happened is that I got invited to parties and I started going to parties with, with my new friends and I started making more friends. And at these parties, I started to meet girls and I certainly was a lot more comfortable, you know, communicating and talking to girls. Um, and so I immediately had some luck, you know, the first time I would go out and started kind of meeting girls and talking to girls and hooking up with girls. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, I'm actually kind of good at this. You know, I'm actually good at picking up girls and you know, this, so my mindset about myself, about women, about alcohol, it really all started to change in that time. So that was high school and bleeding into college. And this was, this was, it was all fused together. So alcohol was a part of all of these scenes. And when you were talking to girls, it was partly fueled by, by the alcohol or by the kind of comfort level that you felt in that scene with, with the booze. Yes, correct. I, you know, had a lot of insecurity about myself. I had acne, a lot of acne when I was a kid. I had this kinky, curly hair. I was Latino and in a predominantly white school, I was shorter and smaller than the other guys. I felt different. I looked different. And, you know, I was super self-conscious. Alcohol wiped that all away. 
Um, mm. And I was able to kind of tap into my Latin roots and kind of play to that strength. Whereas before I saw it as, you know, um, a shortcoming. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so interesting what you're saying because it really feels like in some ways that was your natural self or your, your intuition started to come out when you drank, um, which in some ways is like, in some ways is a more authentic version of you maybe. Um, whereas without the alcohol, all of the insecurities and the doubts and the like kind of making yourself small was part of what I heard in that sort of arrived at the surface and coded everything in that. It was that your experience. I, I couldn't have explained it better. Yes, it's exactly what it is. And I've, you know, I'm, I'm as a coach, I often identify that person, which I call, uh, you know, one drink Omar or one drink Steve or one drink whoever. There is this very authentic version of ourselves just covered, surrounded by limiting beliefs. So there's all this anxiety, all this overwhelm surrounding all of these things that happened to us in our childhood as we're growing up. And then we have this beer or alcohol, whatever the case may be. And there's this moment where that shift happens. And I'm no longer concerned with all of these limiting beliefs or with these negative thoughts. All of a sudden, they're gone. And I'm gregarious and I'm funny and I'm outgoing. And yes, that is the more the the authentic version of me that alcohol allowed to come to the surface. So I'm curious in your own story, you know, when did it start to become like, oh, this is a problem or this is an issue or, you know, when did you sort of start to realize this isn't actually serving me? you know, in the way, because I I guess listening to it, it could be like, oh, well, this, this seems great. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong here. Let's just drink alcohol and be our authentic selves. Right. right. That's not the whole story. So when did you kind of, this is the beginning. I mean, (laughs) I'm 48 years old. That was a long time ago. I also love how you specified being 16 and a half. I'm like really impressed that you (laughs) could remember like 16 and a half. It's so specific. Well, let me tell you, I interview my podcast, SHARE, which stands for Sharing Helps Alcoholics in Recovery, is predominantly about people who have an alcohol problem. So when I get them and I ask them, so tell me what... When was the how how when was the first time you drank and used drugs? How old you were the first time you drank and used drugs? And more importantly, how it made you feel. And they can take you right there. They know the time. They know the moment. They know the age. They know the experience because it's this life changing moment where you find yourself. Yeah, it is is a life changing experience. And so you know, remembering that alcohol is a stimulant and a depressant, right? In the beginning, it. Boom, it does what it's supposed to do. It wakes you up, it picks you up, it gives you this, you know, energy. Um, and then 20 minutes later, you start to downslide. It starts to, you know, uh, chill you out. It starts to kind of slow you down. And I need another beer, right, to kind of try and recapture that moment. So in the beginning, sure, it works, but it quickly starts to turn on you. Now, and, and, and here's how it turned for me. Underneath all of that, because there's layers. So underneath all the being small and being scared and being insecure, 
was another layer, which was anger, bitterness, resentment, rage um, towards the people that picked on me, towards being bullied, towards, you know, being rejected, towards being made fun of. And so what happens is the alcohol consumption first lifts the insecurities to ignite that authentic version of yourself. But after a while, it starts to also let loose all of that negativity. And you'll get into this. I became this angry, mean drunk. So I started bullying people. I started picking fights. I started being that guy. Alcohol started to create this space for me where it's like, it's your turn now. It's now it's time for me to make people feel uncomfortable. It's time for me to make people feel scared. It's time for me to turn the tables. And so what that started to do is I started facing consequences. You know, I'd get into fights. I'd get beat up. I'd wake up all beat up and bruised. I don't remember what happened. I got my first DUI. I ended up in jail. So these consequences start showing up. My relationships with women just started going into the toilet. So I would go and at first it was like I was Don Juan and I knew what to say and how to act. And I'd, you know, meet girls and get into a relationship and I'd have a girlfriend and then my friends would tell me, Hey, there's a party at so-and-so's house. And I was like, I'm not telling my girlfriend and I'd go to the party, pick up on another girl. Right. And then start this whole kind of cycle of just being this very, um, self-centered, self-absorbed jerk, uh, that the alcohol started to change. And then I started to lose my authenticity and started to become this person that was like almost payback, payback, even to the girls too. Right. Because, you know, when I was in high school, asking a girl out sober, man, I got rejected all the time. And so there was a lot of me, there was like this retribution that I felt that, that, that needed to, to kind of, that, that needed to present itself or, or presented itself. Um, and that's how it really started to take a turn for the worst. Yeah. I'm glad that you're speaking to that. Cause I think that, um, you know, part of what you're talking about is like these disowned elements of yourself that you really didn't, weren't integrated into yourself when you were sober, but would come up when you were, when you were drinking, right. When your prefrontal cortex was, was compromised and it wasn't modulated. It's just like, okay, now here's angry Omar (laughs) coming to the surface. And it wasn't like you had a lot of choice or consciousness around it. It was just kind of happening. That's the problem with that. That's the problem with alcohol. That's exactly what the problem is with alcohol. You are a loaded gun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, um, so I've dated a couple of men that, that I would say, I would say were alcoholics and they probably wouldn't call themselves that, but I'm comfortable calling them that. And one of them, um, that's exactly, that was exactly what, um, I was afraid of was, I was like, I'm kind of afraid of you when you drink, like, I don't know what you're capable of. And he was a pretty strong guy. And I know that he didn't, he wouldn't want to hurt me. Like he, he never wanted to hurt me. He'd never want to hurt me. And he never, ever hit me, but there were, but it was sort of like, I could feel this like seething, roiling ball of emotion that was, um, present, especially when he would drink. And I was like, I don't think you're in control of that. 
Like, I don't believe that you have control over yourself and I don't know what you're capable of doing. Like saying, doing to me, to someone else. And I believe that you would wake up in the morning and regret it, but that doesn't make me feel any safer. Like I couldn't, I didn't, I left him. And this was a large part of why, because I was like, I don't, I don't trust you. I don't trust you because I don't think that you can actually trust, trust you either. Is there a question in there? (laughs) Well, I was wondering if that was your experience of like feeling like when you were going through this, like, did you feel out of control? Were you aware of these parts of you that would take over? Like, what was it like being inside that? No, they're, they're actually, um, to understand him, you know, your boyfriend, uh, is to understand myself. And when you are intoxicated, like I said, you're a loaded gun. So anything can happen. What happens is that when you black out or you run out of steam or whatever the case may be, and then the next morning you wake up, you don't know what happened. You don't remember what happened. You don't remember what you said, what you did, what happened, but you know something went horribly wrong. And then immediately you go to the first person that um, you could have affected, for example, you, the girlfriend, and you're like, hey, so what happened last night and blah, blah, blah. And then you start to explain, oh my God, I'm so sorry, that kind of a thing. And so there's this kind of like almost endearing person that kind of appears the next day after they've completely acted out and you know, insulted you or terrified you or, or, you know, said some things that they can never take back. And then it's like, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. It's never going to happen again. And it's so endearing because guess what? In that moment, it's true. In that moment, in that moment of, of like, uh, hungover kind of fogginess, sort of like lost, exhausted, you mean it because you're just, you've got, you've got nothing in the fuel tank to fight against it. And you truly did not want to do the things that you did. So you'll be, you'll tell the person what they did and like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And that's true. I can't believe I did that. And I'm so sorry. And guess what? Guess what you do? Oh, maybe, maybe next time it'll be different. And he's really, really sorry, you know, and you know, he promised he's never going to do it again. But the thing is, you don't know what you're dealing with. And more importantly, he doesn't know what he's dealing with. It's yeah. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And when Mr. When, when Mr. Hyde takes over, anything can happen and there's nothing that Dr. Jekyll can do. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, like, when, um, like, for you and your journey, like, when did you realize... I need help. I can't do this by myself. This isn't, this is now like past the point of me being able to just control it. Because I think that several of the men that I've dated, who all of whom I have left, because I'm like, this is not, this isn't my, this isn't my battle, right? This is your battle. Like you gotta, you gotta go on this journey and I'm not willing to be like, with you, you know, until you're going on the journey. Yes. Um, but I don't think that they were ready to, to say like, I need help. Like they, I think they really thought they could control it. I think they thought they had a handle on it. I think they thought like, Oh no, like I'm not an alcoholic. I just like to drink sometimes. And I'm like, 
no, dude, it's past that. Like, and you know, like when did you start to realize like, oh, wow, I need to get a handle on this? This is a great question. And this is, this is probably the crux of this podcast when it comes to understanding where they're at and where you're at. So if you're on the receiving end of the alcohol abuse, then understand that I never realized that I had a problem. I always had an excuse. It, was, it wasn't the alcohol, it was the drugs. It wasn't the drugs, it was the alcohol. It wasn't this, it was that. It was the job. It was, there was always an excuse. In my mind, you know, it was everybody else. But what I didn't realize is that the alcoholism, the disease had its hooks in me and it wasn't prepared to let go and it was going to rationalize and justify everything. So here's what happened. What happened was that I I moved to Costa Rica um, 20 years ago to open up an online casino and sports book surrounded with the most deplorable individuals, uh, including myself um, at the time. And it was just one rock star party after the next. In the middle of all this, I meet this beautiful Costa Rican girl we fall in love, uh, we move in together, and my alcoholism just goes through the roof. Really, it was more of alcohol, drug abuse kind of deal, but the alcohol is really the, the, um, at the foundation of it all. So what happens is it starts to escalate, and I'm doing the same thing with her. Like, sober Omar is the sweetest, most endearing, most uh, manipulative, if you, if you know, uh, I guess that's the best way to put it, um, guy ever. So when I'm not drinking and I've created all kinds of chaos, then it's like, I'm sorry, it's never going to happen again. I promise, blah, 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 blah. You make every single promise in the world. It's a lie. And so she eventually would be like, okay, all right, okay, I'll give you another chance. And then a little time will pass and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go out with the fellas. Oh, but hey, Easy does it, you know, don't, don't overdo it. You know, hey, relax, I got this under control. And now all of a sudden, that guy starts to come out. He starts to defend himself. He's crossing over between Dr. Jekyll and to Mr. Hyde before he's even had a drink. Because my mind's already going, ooh, we're going out with the fellas. Oh my God, can't wait. Probably already had a couple of drinks in me. The minute somebody says, hey, we're going out tonight. If it's three in the afternoon, I'm going to start drinking then. And so that metamorphosis starts to happen. Hey, you know, just take it easy. You know, don't get out of control. Hey, I know what I'm doing. Don't worry. I'll be fine. Yeah, I'll be home, you know, by midnight, blah, 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 blah. Four o'clock in the morning, shut the phone down, not answering the phone, out of control, doing it all over again. And then in the morning, who shows up? Mr. I'm so sorry. I'm never going to do it again. So this went on for years. She should have left me long before she did. Okay. We were together. We were together for three years and her mind, if we get married, he's going to change. So I proposed to her, right? Okay. Well, he's got to change. We get married, right? Nope. I get worse. So I'm going to get pregnant, right? So that's got to make a difference, right? So she gets six months after we're married. Boom. She's pregnant, right? I get worse. She's like, well, obviously he's not going to get any better. Like all of a sudden you, you bring a child into the equation 
And there is a different mindset that comes in there. And it no longer becomes about me and saving me or justifying me. It becomes about saving the baby from this monster. And so ultimately, um, she's like, I'm six months pregnant. You're not going to quit. I'm done. You're out. And all of a sudden, everything in my world started to crumble. My business partners had had enough. I had gone from, you know, partying like one of the other, like everybody else into being the only guy excluded from the party. Even my friends didn't want to have anything to do with me anymore. They're like, dude, that guy cannot handle his alcohol. So my friends started to exclude me and didn't want me around. My business partners were like, we got to get him out of the business. He's ruining everything. Um, And ultimately my wife's like, we're done. You're out of here. This is not happening. You're not bringing this into my life. So nowhere in there, nowhere in there was me saying, oh, I think I have a problem. I think I need to stop. I think I need to seek help. No, it was you have now run out of options. You have burned every bridge. You are by yourself. And it's like, oh, now what do I do? Oh, maybe I should go to one of those 12-step meetings that the therapist recommended 10 months ago. Huh, maybe I should do that. And that was really what happened. Okay, so for the women that are listening, you have to understand you've got no idea what you're up against. None. You've got no idea. And more importantly, neither do they. They're spiraling. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, perhaps like in, in my case, I was like, I know exactly what I'm up against. I'm, I'm leaving. Like this isn't (laughs) like, I I think there's no, the the thing is, the thing is the one, the, the fact that you said, I know what I'm up against and I'm leaving, right. That, I mean, that's, that's evolution, right? You, you've, you finally got to a point where you recognize, aha, I know what's happening here. I'm out. This is the message to those that still feel like there's hope in the middle of this tornado chaos and mayhem. Yeah, exactly. And, and honestly, um, this is part of the reason I want to do this episode is because I never clearly said to you, to, um, any of the guys that I dated, Hey, I'm leaving you because I'm uncomfortable about this drinking. I never said Mm. that. I just left. Because I was like, I don't think that conversation is going to go well. I don't think that he's going to be open to hearing it. I don't, you know, and I don't know, like, I'm curious as someone who was, you know, who coaches men and, you know, people who drink, like, was I right to do that? Because there was a part of me that was like, I don't think that this is actually going to make a difference if I say this, but maybe it would have, you know, like one of the men in question, he really cared about me. And maybe it's possible if I had said I'm uncomfortable about this, that he would have possibly like sought help. Um, on the other hand, part of it was like, I don't want him to go to AA because of me. I don't want him to get help because of me. Like that doesn't make me feel safe either. It's like, well, I'm just doing this to get it out of the way so that you won't leave me. I was like, that doesn't feel like a permanent solution. You know, I want my man to, to understand himself and to be kind of like on his path because he chose that because he gets how important it is. 
What are your thoughts on that? Okay, so everyone that's listening, okay, Melanie just worked it out. She just had a stream of consciousness, okay, which is usually what I will coach people through is try and guide them to this stream of consciousness. You just answered your own question. You knew exactly what to do. You're wondering if I did the right thing, but ultimately you came to the conclusion yourself. I don't want this guy to change because of me. I don't want this guy to go to AA because of me. I don't want to tell this guy that the problem is alcohol so he can try and figure it out or, or maybe make excuses for it. He should already know. Yeah. And so, you know, what I tell a lot, of, you know, what I, what I tell women, right, is like, go home, pack your stuff, get out. Yeah. Because you, again, you have no idea who you're up against. Yeah. So you, you've got some guy who is one day the sweetest guy in the world, and then the next day he's a monster. Who are you going to get when you say, hey, listen, you know what? Um, this isn't working out. Um, you need to get help. Ooh. You, right. I would never, ever recommend that, especially on your own. It's super, super dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally. You did yeah, the right yeah. thing. Get out. You, you don't need to give any excuses for your own safety. That's the thing. This is my life that we're talking about here. My own safety. Yeah. I have to always take that into consideration first. Totally. And so when you um, were, I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is rock bottom. Like my friends are excluding me. My business partners are kicking me out. My wife is leaving me, you know, did you at that point start going to meetings? Like what was your journey? Yes. Immediately, okay. immediately. As soon as I lost everybody, right. I had gotten to this point where I woke up out of a complete blackout. And the night before I had had such a horrible night, I had done so much drugs, drank so much alcohol that I literally prayed to God to die. I said, I can't, I cannot do this anymore. I have no reason to live. I've lost everything and I can't stop. I can't. So just take me out of this world or help me get clean. And the next morning I woke up and the first thought in my head was, remember that therapist told you you should go to one of those 12 step meetings. And I got up, I got dressed. I grabbed whatever clothes was on the floor. I got in my car, drove straight to that therapist's office. I said, I need help. He said, I'm so glad you're back. I said, can you give me directions to one of those meetings? He said, here's the directions. It starts in an hour. Go there now. And I just grabbed the directions and I drove there. And in nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in this uh, story is me thinking about anything except getting to that meeting. From the moment I woke up that morning until I actually walked into the door of that meeting, my only thought was I got to get to that meeting. It wasn't, I'll go to the meeting tomorrow. I wonder if the meeting's going to work. I wonder if they're going to like me. I wonder if those people are going to accept me. It never, like to me, what happened was I had a spiritual experience. Yeah. I had a spiritual experience that when I asked for help, the only thought in my mind, the only reoccurring thought in my mind was get to that meeting, get to that meeting, get to that meeting. That's where you need to be. You need to get to that meeting. And I got to that meeting 
And I sat down. I said, my name's Omar. I'm an alcoholic. I need help. And they said, you're in the right place. We can help you. Uh, And they said, here's a phone list. Call everyone on this phone list before you pick up a drink or a drug between today and tomorrow. Mm. And, and so I did just that. I did exactly what they told me to do. And I started going to meetings every single day. And I, I, I immediately started to feel better. And I started more importantly, the thing that I, the, the thing that I, I got or the thing that I developed or received in that first meeting was hope because I had completely lost hope that I could change my life, that I could do anything differently. I had completely derailed my life. And I didn't think that there was any hope for me. And that meeting gave me some hope. Um, And then a few months later, my daughter was born. And that's when everything, she's 16 years old. I'm 16 years clean and sober. When she was born, that was it. She was the catalyst She was the only thing that I had left in my life that I felt like fighting for because I I had lost the ability to fight for my marriage, for my business, for my own life. And she, she, like the minute I held her in my arms, I was like, this is it. This is it. I'm going to, whatever I got to do, I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to ask any questions and I'm not going to, I'm not going to question the process. I am going to do whatever it is that I have to do uh, to be the best husband, not best husband, best father, best man, best human being that I can be. Because husband, gone. That was, that was, that was, I burned all that. So, you know, you talk about a burning boats moment. I had burned unintentionally every boat behind me and I had only one choice was to be a good father. Um, And I channeled all my energy there. And so I went to meetings and I got a sponsor and I started working the steps um, and completely changed my life. And, and it's, it almost comes full circle because I feel like now that's part of what you help other people do. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit in, in the process of working the steps and everything like that. Like, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the time, you know, alcoholism and other drug abuse comes from trauma. Can you talk a little bit about your process in terms of going through and, and healing and what that looked like for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. Through it is, it's more than just stopping drinking alcohol, I guess. No. Oh my God. It's so, so much more than just stopping. Um, anybody can stop. Anybody can stop drinking alcohol. It's how long can you stop? How long can you, can you stay sober without having this need to soothe yourself? Because here's what comes up. There is, there is this emotional wounding from childhood that you bring into this alcohol relationship. So you discover alcohol. It soothes you from your trauma. And then what happens is you lose control and it creates new trauma. And so you, I, you, for many, you, have, you, you come to the conclusion that alcohol is the problem and that these, all these horrible things that I did while I was drinking, I can't come back from. There's no 
hope for me. There's no retribution. I've lost my business, lost my family. I've embarrassed myself. I've embarrassed my family. I've done all these horrible, horrible things um, in my disease um, that I'm unable to process. So before I can even get to healing or begin healing, you know, my issues that I had from childhood, I first have to deal with all the trauma and, you know, the wounding that happens during active addiction and during my alcohol, active alcoholism. So what happens is when you get yourself a sponsor and they start taking you through the steps, you're able to get like free therapy because you meet with your sponsor every week and you start working these steps and you start telling them your story and they start feeding it back to you, but they feed it back to you a little bit differently and they give you a little bit more, a different perspective, right? And so it allows you to look at your life and what you've done in a different way and you stop punishing yourself, judging yourself, holding yourself in such contempt and self-loathing because you start to kind of understand that, you know what, we've all gone through this, man. Like what you've gone through, what you've done, I've done that. I've been there, right? And this is what I did. And this is, this is what the steps are going to allow you to do. They're going to allow you to make amends for all the th- harm that you've caused. Take responsibility for the harm that you caused. Stop blaming other people for all the things that horrible things that happened to you in your life. And so, you know, about three, three years into my process, I started making amends to the people that I had harmed in my life. And that really started to make dynamic shifts and changes in my own emotional state, in my own healing process. And once I was able to forgive myself for all the things that I had done, because, you know, making amends to the people that I harmed and their response was, hey, man, just keep doing what you're doing and it's all good. I understand. Um, you need that feedback. You need feedback from the people you've harmed. You need feedback from your sponsor. You need feedback from the people in the rooms. You need feedback. You need to be able to share what is going on in your head because the way you're processing it alone is very different than when the way you will process it with someone else. And then 10 years into my sobriety, actually more than that, more like 13 years into my sobriety, finishing working the steps, sponsoring countless numbers of guys, taking them through the process. And as I'm taking them through the process, I'm continuing to heal, continuing to grow, continuing to learn. I discover coaching. And when I hired my first coach, what we did was emotional healing work. And that single-handedly changed my life because I was able to look at my childhood and recognize, oh my God, this is where it all stems from. It wasn't the alcohol. Alcohol was helping me cope with all this anger and bitterness and rage and resentment and fear and insecurity and doubt. And I mean, the list was long of all of the things of, of all the wounding of all the negative self-talk, of all the negative emotions, all the limiting beliefs, everything was was massive. Yeah. And at some point, you get to unpack all this and go and look and look at it in a completely 
different way. Um, so yeah, the, none of this is like, oh, so I stopped drinking and my life was awesome. No, no. There is a tremendous amount of work, self-reflection, coaching, uh, step work that needs to be done uh, for you to get to a point where there's no longer a need for soothing. Yeah, that's what I would, I would love to hear more about that because I'm, I'm wondering like, you know, I'm imagining that you feel more grounded in your life now and there's a different sense of, of stability. Like, like what is your life like now on the other side of this? Well, for example, it took me 10 years to let go of, of a lot of things. And, and really what I had to do is I had to, I really had to evolve as a human being and as a man um, before I was, before I met my wife, my wife and I have been married for five years. We've been together for six years. And when we met, I was 10 years, I was celebrating 10 years clean. Um, and what happened was I had to do a very big deep dive into why I was attracting the same women. And it was because I was the same man. I had to become a different man in order to attract different women. Um, I had to cut the cord between, you know, my modeling, the modeling that I had done with my father and, and modeled my father as a husband and as a, as a father. I had to cut those cords and I had to reassess uh, my values. I had to reassess my behaviors and recognize that that was not going to bring me the kind of relationship that I, that I was looking for that I wanted. Um, so when I started taking ownership of that, my wife appears um, and we met and within three months I asked her to marry me. Um, and then within a year we were married. So that's, that's, you know, credit to, 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 to change, to really uh, understanding that, you know, when there's, when there, there's reoccurring issues in your life, chances are it's not the reoccurring issues. Chances are there's some part of your life that needs to be healed or changed or grow or, or you know, or learn from um, so that you can make the appropriate changes. And, and, from, and from there, it was about me really doing a deep dive into what was it about my childhood. And, and really, I had blamed everybody. I blame, I blame my parents. I blame my mom's religion. I blame the school kids. I blamed everybody for all the horrible, terrible things that happened to me. Um, and it, it wasn't until I was able to let all that go, especially with the people that was closest to me, like my father. Let those, you know, like one of my biggest healing moments was um, my dad had, um, I, was about a, I was about a year sober and my sister got married. I was separated from my wife. My dad had just gone through a horrible divorce with my mom, two years of like living hell. Um, they lived together for 33 years, hate each other, fought as long as I can remember. And at the wedding, uh, you know, he's like, hey, so what's going on with you? Um, and, you know, my ex-wife, my wife at the time. And I'm like, no, it doesn't look like it's going to work out. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a bad, it's, it's, it's bad, right? Like I've done too much damage, right? And he's drunk and he starts giving me marital advice. And I lost my gasket there. And I'm like, I'm like, what gives you the right to give me marital advice? 
Okay. You, you were a horrible husband and you know, you have, and, and you put mom through a living hell in the divorce and you're coming to tell me, give me advice. Now I'm, I'm being more PC in how I'm describing this, but there was a lot of profanity. There was a lot of yelling. There was me getting in my dad's face. And my uncle was like, Hey, take it easy, man. Like that's your father. And I'm like, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm out of here. Um, and I, then I didn't speak to my dad for two years. I didn't speak to my father for two years. So then three years into my sobriety, my sponsor says, Hey, it's time for you to make amends to your father. And I'm like, I'm not making amends to him. He owes me an apology. He owes me an amends. He's like, it's not for him. It's for you. You're not going to heal unless you forgive him. Unless you let this go, you have to let this go. It's not about him. This is about you. So I call my dad. I hadn't spoken to him. And my sponsor, the way he got me to call him was he said, what would happen if something happened to your dad? You know, and you hadn't made amends to him. How would you feel? And I was like, oh, God, that's terrible. All right, all right. So I called him and I picked up the phone. I'm like, hey, dad. And he was like, hey, son. And boom, it was like all the anger, all the resentment, all the bitterness. It just, I don't know where it went. But as soon as I heard his voice, something changed. I'm like, hey, dad, I called to make amends. He's like, for what? I'm like, you know, for yelling at you at, at Jessica's wedding, he's like, you don't owe me amends. You don't owe me anything, you know, but I sure would love to see you. So in that moment, in that moment, something happened. And I, I know what it is now, but I didn't know what happened then. But all the anger, all the bitterness, all the resentment just disappeared in that moment. And I, I was like, yeah, dad, I, I, you know, yeah, it would be great to see you. And he's like, I'm going to book a flight and I'm going to come to see you. And what happens is you can't hold two emotions at the same time. You can't hold a positive emotion or negative emotion at the same time. You're either happy or you're sad. You're either angry or you're loving, right? It's, it's very, very difficult to be loving and angry at the same time. Yeah. So, so I'm holding, you know, I would be you know, willing to say it's impossible. So holding on to all this anger and bitterness and resentment, and my dad answers the phone, and I hear his voice. And for whatever reason, in that moment, the anger and the resentment and the bitterness drops. So there's space. And immediately, all this love just kind of like fills that space. And so really, the practice, more than anything, is of letting go. And the only way to do that is you have to take this like incredible leap of faith, this incredible amount of this action step of like, you need to make amends to your father, whether you think you're right or whether, you know, what, whatever your preconceived idea of what the situation is, this is, this is not something that you're going to walk away from if you don't handle it. This is going to affect you for the rest of your life. And so my dad, he came down and he was supposed to be here for two weeks. He ended up being here for two months. And, you know, what happens is, is this, is that I don't know where it went, like, I don't know where all that anger and bitterness went away. But when, when that love filled in, and, you know, obviously here's the response also was not what I expected either. And so you, you never know what's going to happen. Like my dad could have said, you know, screw you, you know, you, you know, whatever. 
And, uh, you know, you, you disrespected me. Of course, you, you owe me an amends, blah, 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 blah. You know, they, any number of things can happen when you walk into a situation where you, you have no control over the other person's response. Right. But my dad receiving me with love allowed me to reciprocate with love. And so we spent two months together, best two months I've ever spent with my dad. We became super close. All the bullshit died. We never brought it back up again. We picked up, right, like a brand new relationship. He would come down and visit. I would go to the States and spend time with him. And two years after we made amends, I got a call from my sister. I got the call. So in that moment, I realized that this is not something, this is not like a game. Like me holding on to this resentment and this anger, if it wasn't for my sponsor, if it wasn't for recovery, if it wasn't for me letting go, I would have gotten a phone call and my life would be very different today. Yeah. And dad passed away a year after that. I'm sorry. So that still gets me. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful story, the way that you tell it, though, because you were able to have the important conversations and you were able to complete that circle before he passed on. And like you said, if you hadn't been brave and gone through that journey, you would never have had that opportunity. And you... I believe might have gone through the rest of your life feeling that regret. Yes. I'm, I, I really don't have any idea, especially with, especially through all the growth and all the personal development and all the healing that I've done that, you know, leave no stone unturned. That would have been an unstone. That would have been a, a stone that I could not unturn, you know? And so, yeah. When I think about that, it's like the message, the message for me is always, you know, I mean, I could have done it a year prior. If I could have done it a year before, I would have done it a year before. If I could have done it, you know, the next day, right? In retrospect, I would have done it. No question yeah. about it. Because, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. he was going to pass a yeah. lot sooner than any of us ever expected. He died at 67 years old of cirrhosis of the liver. He was also an alcoholic. So, so the, the, the message is, you know, while you're in this process of healing, there is going to be time where you're going to have to let go. Mm. You're going to have to let go of what you think is real. Because the question is always, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? Because you can't have both sometimes. Yeah. And when you're holding on to something that could potentially change your life forever, recognizing that when I picked up that phone, my life changed in an instant. My relationship with my dad changed in an instant. My feelings for my dad changed in an instant. Everything changed in an instant. But up until I'd made that phone call, I was steadfast. Mm. It happens in an instant. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, because you coach, you coach people through this, and I'm sure you've seen a variety of, of responses. Have you ever seen a situation where it's actually 
you know, where that, where it doesn't happen, where the parent responds well, and it sort of like could be dangerous for that child, adult child to go back and be in relationship with that parent? Like, have you seen another way of being able to let go without necessarily being in relationship with someone who's not safe? Well, you know, here's, here's, I, I come from a different perspective when I coach people because of that. Um, it's really, it really all depends on what the situation, every situation is different. Um, and it depends on who, how it, how it was left off because I, you know, I've got clients where the level of toxicity is so heavy in the home that their only choice is to create very strong boundaries right. between them and their mother or their father. You know, they're still actively drinking. They're still active. You know, they're still um, very sick, very dysfunctional, and very toxic. And it's creating, and they're actually trying to um, either um, uh, reestablish or establish or, or, um, be a part of the, you know, still, still engage. So they're still right in the middle of it. They're still engaging. Yeah. Most of the times when I'm dealing in with situations like this, where I will say, if you're going to have to set some clear boundaries with your family members, and if they can't respect those boundaries, you need to bounce. Yeah. You need to, you need to cut them out of your life because what it's doing is it's bleeding into your life. Okay? And it's it is, draining you. It's draining, it's you. draining you. See, yeah. it's very different than, hey, you know, I haven't talked to my dad in five years. Now we're all, that's a whole different ball of wax. Then I go, mm-hmm. okay, so, so tell me more. I need to know more. I need all the details. I need to know what happened. I need how it went down. I need all the details, right? Yeah, yeah. And then a situation like this, and okay, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna make an attempt. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're gonna make a phone call. Let's see how that phone call is received. Yeah, right. And you're you know the place you're gonna come from is reestablishing communication, coming from a place of love. We have to come. If you cannot come from a place of love, you got no business doing this. So you have to come from a place of love. You can't come from a place of, hey, you know what, um, just thought I'd check in with you, you know, but, you know, if you hadn't done this, you know, I would have called you a long time ago. So how right. you walk, you know, how you walk into this situation is just as important. Your intentions are everything. So if your intention is to reestablish a relationship, you need to come in with love, right? And then based on how you are received, then we can take it from there. But we're going to have to like, enter with caution. However, if they're in knee deep into it, they're a full-blown alcoholic, they're abusive, they're, they're um, toxic, they're manipulative, they're, they're guilting you, and they're, you know, they're, they're all this stuff. It's like, you need to set clear boundaries here. And if those boundaries are not respected, you need to, wa- you need to walk away. So yeah, there's definitely, there's no there's, if you, you know, there's your attempt and then there's their response. If my dad would have said, you're a piece of shit, you owe me this and this and that. Don't you ever speak to me that way? Things would have gone very different. Yeah. 
And I think that's important to point out because, you know, you talked about coming from a place of love and I think ultimately boundaries are a form of self-love and that's really critical in the conversation so that it's not just about, you know, forgiveness or, um, obviously forgiveness is a part of the equation, but self-love part of that means protecting yourself. And if that includes boundaries, then that includes boundaries. And I think that's important to name because I think in a lot of these kinds of homes, like the kids weren't necessarily allowed to have boundaries or healthy boundaries weren't role modeled. So there's no sense of, of how to do it. It's like a new skill that you have to learn especially when you come from a home where there weren't healthy boundaries. It's like, what the hell are boundaries? <laughs> you know, and, even, and, and do I means. have a right to them? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, for sure. For sure. And most of the time, unfortunately, it, it more times than not, there is the setting of the boundaries more than making the amends because they're right in the middle of it. You're talking about your clients. I'm talking about my clients. Yes, I'm talking about my clients. They're not estranged, right? This wasn't a situation where, you know, I I did this or I did that. There is this, like, uh, for example, like even with, it it, it was one relationship with my dad. It's another relationship with my mother. My mother is a constant reassessment and reasserting of the boundaries. Yeah. Because mom just loves to cross the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, And I'm already in a place where I know where my boundaries are. I'm able to go, I'm able to remind her Mm -hmm. of, of the boundaries, but also recognizing this one is not going to be like dad. Yep. Like, like dad really, when, when this, when this happened, it's, if I think back, if I needed to create boundaries with my father, I didn't like as soon as that situation, he came, he flew to Costa Rica. He lived with me for two weeks and he stayed for two weeks. Right. And he was just here and he was here for me and he was here for our relationship. You know, he wasn't here to tell me how to, he wasn't, he was no longer here to tell me how to be married. He was no longer here to tell me how to do my job or how to be a better son. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, my, which my mother is constantly reminding me of, right? <laughs> so this is when somebody comes to me, it's like, I need to know everything. So mm, what's right. the relationship? What's it look like? What does it feel like? What are the emotions that come up? Boom. From there, now we create a whole different game plan. Every single, every single, every single coaching client has a different game plan. Yeah, They've got all kinds of different uh, issues from childhood. They've got different parents. They've got, you know, the ones that are like, you know, awesome parents and others that are like, you know, toxic vortexes that are sucking the life's blood out of them. Yep. And And they just really need somebody to tell them it's okay to set those boundaries. To set the boundaries. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that. And one thing I want to point out is, you know, um, the value of going to meetings, the value of having mentors, the value of having sponsors, the value of having coaches is partly that if you were raised in a family system that wasn't modeling healthy boundaries and was dysfunctional, 
you don't know how to do this stuff yet. You just don't know how to do it. So you're just repeating these patterns. And it seems to me like everyone I've talked to that's gotten through to the other side of addiction of any kind, you know, whether it's alcohol addiction or porn addiction or any other kind, it involves other people. It involves connection. It involves other healthy role models. It's not really something you can just do alone and in the void. And I guess that's something I just wanted to touch on because I think especially men, like there's, it's like, it's sort of, I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of pressure on men to like figure it out themselves or like be able to do it all themselves. It's like, that doesn't actually seem to be how this works like how growth and evolution actually works. We're a collective and we need each other to do it. It doesn't seem like you can just do it in isolation. Well, that's, 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 uh, that's old school. That's completely antiquated. And that all comes back to a generation that, you know, does not air their dirty laundry, yeah. does not discuss family issues outside of the home, yeah. that there is a very strict policy about discussing any of the intricacies of your home. So there is never, there's never been a moment since I got into personal development, even when I got into uh, recovery, where there was ever a moment was like, okay, so now you have to, you know, handle things on your own. Okay. So now you got to go. Yeah. Now go, go, go be with God. Right. And you're on, you're on your own. There is no flying. There is no leaving the nest. Once you are, once you are in a fold, once you're in, in a, fellowship, whether it's 12 steps, whether it's coaching, whether it's therapy, whether it's, you know, your best friends, it, 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 doing it alone is not optional because what you've learned as a child comes from generations of dysfunction and toxicity and silence and lack of vulnerability, lack of openness, lack of connection. It's like men are supposed to do, figure things out on their own. They're supposed to be strong. They're not supposed to show weakness. They're not supposed to show emotions. Bullshit. That is the biggest load of crap ever, ever. You know, and the other thing is that it's so much, to me, it's so much braver to do the work. That's the strong man to me. Like the, the man who's just stuck in alcoholism, entrenched and not willing to look at it at all. That's not a strong man. (laughs) Like that's, that's an illusion. It's not, it's not actually true. It's so much stronger and braver to go to the meetings, get the sponsor, get the help, go to therapy. Like that's hard. It's really hard. It's totally worth it. And it's transformational when it comes to relationships. And to me, it's the bravest thing that a man can do. It's way braver than quote unquote going it alone. Well, and and I'll say this to anyone, especially because we're not designed to be alone. We're not designed to live alone. We're not designed to be alone. So at some point you're going to be in a relationship. So you're either going to be a husband or you're going to be a wife. But let me assure you, if you've ever said to yourself, I keep attracting the same person, that means you need to change. That means you need to surround yourself with the right people and you need to get an understanding of what happened to you in your life. And there's no way you're going to figure this out on your own. You're just going to keep repeating the same mistakes. You're going to keep using the same language you're going to keep attracting the same people. We're energy. We are all 
energy. We're like batteries. And so we attract or like magnets actually. So we, we pull things into our reality. We pull things into our space. We pull people, places, things. All we have to do is think about certain things and we will bring it into our existence. So if my mindset doesn't change, then the energy is that I put out into the, into the, into the quantum space or the quantum now we're now we're really getting woo wooey. Sorry, I'm you know, totally woo. It's, it's welcome. <laughs> okay, this energy that you put out into the energy into the universe, the universe is going to say, "Aha! Okay, send back like energy." Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's why it's so valuable to have those mentors because you start getting new energy, new energetics, yes. new patterns, new ways of being. Someone that's been through it and is now sober, for example, that's a new energetic that you can, like you said, model yourself on and just be around and have faith and hope. Like I can, I can get there too. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, like a quick, a quick, a quick example of that is if my mindset is, you know, men are the breadwomen are the breadwinners and women are the homemakers. If I, if I change my mindset to, um, we're both breadwinners or it's okay for women to, to be the breadwinners and for the man to be at home or whatever. Like just, just one small, that's just one small mindset change where yeah. it is you just change the mindset about roles. As soon as you change that mindset about roles, your energy immediately changes. Right. And that yeah, energy goes out into the universe. Right. Yeah. And it opens up more possibilities. Like ultimately it opens up more, just well, more possibilities. If you, if you believe that women are supposed to stay home and men are supposed to be providers, then you meet a woman who's independent and has, you know, her own business or da da da, da And automatically you feel threatened. And then you're like, you, you walk away. Yeah. Or you try to cut her down. Or you try and cut her down or whatever the case, whatever the case may be. All of that's done subconsciously mm-hmm. because, you know, you're talking to this person that you don't relate to because they don't have the same values. You mm-hmm. change your values, you change your energy. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it sounds like this is part of what you do. Coaching clients. Yes. We, could, um, we do deep you- dives into values and, you know, and, and, you know, core values, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm wondering like, if people are interested in getting in touch with you or how, how do you work in terms of um, working with you or what's your, what's your contact info and stuff? Best way to reach out to me is just go to omarpinto.com. It's got my podcast. It's got my coaching information. It's got my membership community information. It's got everything that you need to know about me and how to uh, reach out to me. Um, anyone who's interested in coaching, uh, can sign up for a free consultation. So you just go to the website, omarpinto.com, set up a free consult, um, and we can decide if if this is the right, if if we're the right fit for each other. And you can also listen to your podcast. Uh, People mm-hmm. can listen to your podcast too, right? If they're not, let's say, let's say they're not sure they have a drinking problem. They think maybe it could be helpful to listen to some episodes about that. That could be a low um, barrier of entry way to get started. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and like I said, the podcast is on omarpinto.com. It's called The Share Podcast. 
actually, if you go to iTunes, if you if you use an iPhone, right, you go to a podcast, type in the Share Podcast or just S-H-A-I-R. It's spelled, sorry, just to be clear, it's spelled S-H-A-I-R, yeah. which stands for Sharing Helps Alcoholics in Recovery. And, um, you know, and, and have a listen, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I interview people that battle with all kinds of addictions, alcoholism, drug abuse, porn addiction, codependency, you name it. Eating disorders. Uh, eating yeah. disorders. And I've, I've interviewed the gamut. So, yeah. you know, yeah. really, and really at the end of the day, all of those addictions are all soothing agents. Yes. Just because yeah. one person gambles or one person uses drugs or one person drinks doesn't mean that they're not dealing with some sort of a trauma. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it typically means that I have found a coping mechanism to deal with discomfort. And yeah. in my particular case, it has manifested itself as gambling or alcohol or food or right. shopping or you name it. Yeah. And um, as we wrap here, I'm wondering, um, you know, as someone, you mentioned this briefly earlier, but what is your experience as in, in terms of living a life where you don't need soothing, you know, how, how is that for you? Like, what is life like on the other side? It's amazing. It's absolutely, it's incredible. It's empowering. Um, what'll happen is when you let go, you allow yourself to be guided. When you allow real change to happen in your life, these amazing people start to come into your existence. Mm. These amazing friends that eventually turn into family, these amazing people that we fall in love with that end up being our husbands or our wives, and then their amazing families that we become a part of. Like As we start to change and grow and evolve, and we, we start to heal from all these wounds that we were soothing over. Then this, it's this amazing circle kind of like surrounds us. Mm. And life gets, gets really, really good. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have times of struggle and want to soothe. For me, the soothing is food because I can justify food all day long. <laughs> Right, like if I'm if I'm gonna pick anything, right, I'm gonna use this or Netflix, right. So my my two big soothing agents are, are like food and Netflix, but mm-hmm. it's no longer cigarettes or drugs or mm-hmm. alcohol or you know you name it, anything that's like damaging to to my health. And even with the food, it's one of those things where I know what I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm. awareness and recognition is half the battle. So yeah. when I'm in this moment where I'm like, I'm soothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not destroying your relationship with your wife, for example. No, because I will tell so- my wife, let's go soothe. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, absolutely, right? And then we go to our favorite restaurant. Um. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for thank you for speaking to that because I I really appreciate that. Like, life really is better on the other side, and it's I heard exponentially. What, what you said I heard I heard so much connection. I heard a lot of just connection connection with 
others, with self, with friends, with family, with chosen family, just a sense of community and of um, just the opposite of loneliness, you know, real connection, like feeling, feeling held and like you're a part of something. You know, on my, on my podcast, as a matter of fact, the, that's, that's exactly like in my description, right? I, you know, I, I yeah. say in recovery, the most important ingredient to long-term sobriety is community and connection. Yes. I totally that's it. agree. Yeah. Totally Period. agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. This was a really good discussion and I'm excited to hear. Um, if anyone has feedback, it's dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. And Omar is at omarpinto.com and his podcast is share the share podcast S H A I R not S H A R E. Correct. Melanie, thank you so much. This was amazing. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Just again, a quick note. If you're interested in the course, you can find it at pleaseherinbed.com, www.pleaseherinbed.com or at my site, melaniecurtain.com under courses and have a very sexy day.